WDBM East Lansing. The impact. And now, Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. Good evening, and thank you for tuning in to Exposure on WDBM Impact 89FM. I'm your host, Gabriella Saldivia, filling in for Stephen Rich. With summer officially here, on the show we're going to take a look back at the past year, picking out some of our favorite interviews, features, and stories. This is Exposure. Again, I am Gabriella Saldivia, and this is Impact 89FM. You are listening to Exposure. Before we take a glance back at some of our past stories, we wanted to look forward, or rather, up to the skies. The El Nino is a hard-to-predict warming of the Pacific waters near South America, and this change can have effects as far-reaching as right here in Michigan. Our reporter, Carmen Scruggs, sat down with assistant professor and climatologist Nathan Moore to discuss the El Nino weather phenomenon. El Nino is an anomalous warming of the Pacific. It's mostly centered on the areas to the west of South America. Normally that water's pretty cold. There's upwelling from deep in the ocean because the winds are constantly blowing the water west towards Indonesia. So water is drawn up from underneath to replace it. And that makes it great for fish. 
So there's a lot of fishing that goes off the coast of Peru. And that's uh, how El Nino ended up getting its name. Sometimes fishermen off the coast of Peru would notice that every three to seven years, there'd suddenly be an end to the fishing. And it usually happened around Christmas time. So they said, oh, it must be the boy. It must be Jesus. It must be El Nino that's causing this. And so they associated these events around Christmas time with a, a loss of fishing income and pretty much bad things. That usually coincided with Northern Hemisphere winter. Okay. And so there's also a La Nina. So basically, can you tell me what that is and where the name is with that? Well, you can think of La Nina as being the opposite of El Nino. Instead of a, a warming in the eastern Pacific off South America, it's an anomalous cooling or rebounding. But you can't call it the anti-El Nino because that would be the Antichrist. So they thought, well, a better name for that would be the girl, La Nina. Okay. And if the El Nino is predicted to be strong, you know, for this year, their models are indicating that, correct? Well, models are were predicting that in May. Some of the models now are sort of backing off that, saying it's, it's going to be more of a moderate El Nino. Okay. But it's hard. It's very hard to predict these things. So it, it could be end up being very large, very small. It's still too uncertain yet to say. Okay, and what makes those predictions difficult? Well, uh, there's there's predicting things that are cyclical in nature, like uh, every summer it gets warm, every winter it gets cold. We can't really predict El Nino in the sense that we can't say in 10 years there will be an El Nino or not. Really what we have now is early detection. And so some of the conditions seem to suggest that there's an El Nino forming in the Pacific, although El Ninos usually are see their, the height of their powers during Northern Hemisphere winter. So, you know, start November, December, around then. And it's really hard for us to predict, you know, even six months in advance what the weather's going to be like. So we use climate models. They're the best predictive tools we have available. And there's not a lot of agreement in the current projections now that it's going to be an excessively large one, although the models were saying back in May that, yeah, this is going to be a big one. Okay. And so say that the El Nino would be strong, it would be a big El Nino, what kind of effects would that have in the U.S. and maybe specifically Michigan? The best analogy for a big El Nino is, within recent memory, is the 1997-1998 El Nino season. It's, you know, it's through the winter mostly because it's, it's the, when the ocean in the southern hemisphere is at its warmest. That pattern tends to produce a stronger subtropical jet. Now, if you're not familiar with jet streams, that tends to mean that the southern tier of the United States, from California all the way to Florida, will be warmer and wetter. Nice production and trucking of moisture all the way across the southern tier of the United States. The northern branch, the northern jet, will tend to be pushed further north. So for Michigan, that tends to mean warmer conditions. And there is some pattern of a drying trend in strong El Ninos for the Ohio Valley. So we might see definitely warmer. We might also see some drier conditions. Okay. And then what effect does it have on hurricane season? Ah, that's an interesting one. Remember earlier I said that the subtropical jet, you know, it's about um, 30, 35 degrees north latitude, how it's going to be moving faster. Well, that's that means there's a lot of shear. Shear is very hard on hurricanes. Hurricanes like nice, stable flow 
uh, from surface to the, the top of the troposphere. And if you have a strong shear, it's just going to chop them off in half. So with that nice high-speed wind, high-speed shear across the, the main latitude where hurricanes form for North America, it tends to chop off the hurricanes and suppress hurricane formation and development. Okay, so it would be possibly a better hurricane, hurricane season in the sense that there'll be less hurricanes or less strong hurricanes if there is an El Nino. Yeah, probably almost certainly less hurricanes. We normally have about 12 hurricanes uh, in our, on average for hurricane seasons. But you can even have uh, very bad hurricanes, even if there's only one or two for a given year. Most people think of Katrina as being a bad hurricane and a bad hurricane season. I think there were 26 hurricanes that year. It was a very, very robust hurricane uh, season. But the second most destructive hurricane, Hurricane Andrew, hit Florida. There were very few hurricanes that year. And yet, all you need is one really bad hurricane. So the intensity is... It's harder to associate with El Ninos. But the number, I think you can definitely say that there are, we expect to have fewer hurricanes. Okay. And from your v- viewpoint as a climatologist, what do you think, based off the models and you know your own knowledge, what do you think about the predictions for the El Nino this year? I think it's really too early to say, unfortunately. The models are the best tool we have to look into the future. And I, even though they're not wonderful at predicting they're better than nothing i think we're going to have to just have a take a wait and see type of approach to see how the southern hemisphere winter proceeds and then once we have an idea of how those how those look we'll have a better idea i think the index is now around for the soi southern oscillation index is about 0.9 to 1 which is you know not too bad but nothing nothing earth shattering it's not going to be a record setting el nino There's a lot of discussion about whether El Ninos are going to become worse or more frequent due to the warming of the planet. And there's some evidence that says that there will be more frequent El Nino events, although we have not seen that happen over the historical record. But there is some recent work uh, by Gabriel Vecchi out of Princeton showing that the tendency for there to be um, stronger and more frequent uh, El Ninos is very likely to occur, just given that you've got warmer ocean temperatures in general. So the jury's still out on that, but um, uh, El Nino's may be a much more frequent event, uh, given the warmer conditions. Okay, and say if they were a more frequent event from, in part, through global warming, then what kind of effect would that have? The same effects of the warmer and wetter uh, coastal areas... Well, there are maps you can find online that show what El Nino conditions tend to look like. But it's a, it's largely a reorganization of where you tend to have warm and wet versus cool and dry type patterns all over the Pacific and, and really all over the world. So you might just expect to see a warmer and wetter California, which given the recent droughts they've had in California, they would certainly welcome more El Ninos. And I think people in Michigan would be happy to have more El Ninos just because it means a milder winter. You're listening to Impact Exposure. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Tuesday nights from 8 until midnight, the Impact's progressive torch and twang brings you the best in alternative country and grassroots music. Only on 
Impact Prime Time. You wouldn't send a text while using a chainsaw. Check out these pics of this huge tree falling. You probably wouldn't text while scuba diving. And you definitely wouldn't send a text while making out. You are so smoking hot. I love your elbows. Wait, hold on a second. Huh? I need to send this. OMG, I'm like totally kissing him right now. Dude, what the f***? So why would you send a text while driving? Well, that's different. That's what about 6,000 people who died last year said. Oh. And now, it's illegal in Michigan to read, type, or send any text from your phone while driving. It's a $100 fine for the first offense and 200 bucks after that. Ouch. Check out Michigan House Bill 4394. Be a part of the solution and save a life. And seriously, put the phone away while you're making out. Aw, come back, Cuddle Bunny. You need help. 88.9 The Impact. Now back to Impact Exposure. You're listening to WDBM Impact 89FM. This is Exposure, and I'm your host, Gabriella Saldivia, filling in for Stephen Rich. Tonight on the show, we are highlighting some of our favorite stories. Last year, previous Exposure host Abby Newton spoke with the Peter Nelson Quartet, a group of jazz musicians based in Lansing. They discussed their experience with the art form. I'm Matt LaRusso, I play guitar. Uh, my name's Sam Copperman, and I'm the bass player. My name's Judson Branham, and I play the drum set. My name's Peter Nelson, I play trombone, sing, and I play melodica. And this is the Peter Nelson Quartet. So first off, tell us about your band. Uh, this band I originally put together is kind of an outlet to, uh, to play a lot of original music. And um, a lot of us are playing in lots of different groups where we do a lot of cover, cover music, and I, I play backup horn section all the time. But this was a great outlet to play original music and a great outlet to, uh, to play with some of my best friends. Many of these, actually, all of these guys I've, I've known for a long time, and Matt and I actually have been playing together since we were 15 or so, 15, 14 or 15. Yeah, so this was initially you know, put together to, to just fill a need to play good music. And, uh, but it turned into a, a working endeavor, and it's, it's great, it's fun. And are you guys all Spartans? Yes. yes. Okay, so does it, feel, does it feel good to be back in the college town? Yeah, I'm, I'm still <laughs> currently a student, so. Okay. I am too, so. Okay, and how did you guys all connect? Uh, like I said, Matt and I actually, we were really fortunate to have an opportunity to tour Western Europe wow. uh, in the summer of 2006 or seven. One of the two. Yeah, 2006. I think it was actually the summer of 2007. We toured with the Blue Lake International Jazz Orchestra. So, you know, we've been playing since then. We played at the Blue Lake Fine Arts Camp before then. Uh, I've been playing with Matt, or not, not no, sorry, excuse me. I've been playing with Sam uh, since, like, freshman year, you know, but Sam and I have a special relationship. We, we used to shed tunes all sophomore year, which practice, excuse me, we used to practice tunes um, at least four times a week every evening. So I, there's no bass player in the world I'd rather play with than Sam. Except maybe his teacher. <laughs> uh, and then Judd, you know, Judd, it's, it's always a pleasure to play with Judd, one of the best drummers I've had the opportunity to play with. And, uh, and Judd actually was the last to join the band. Uh, first it was a trio, and, um, and his energy has brought, has brought uh, a lot of an incredible amount of artistry and direction to the band. So, so we've been playing as a unit. To answer your original question, excuse me, this is a very long winter. No, it's good. To answer your original question, we've been playing as a unit since about September. Okay. Is that right? Yeah. It's actually interesting to think that we started as a trio, and yeah. now we're doing something 
completely different. Really? So, mm -hmm. Yeah, it was very, very laid back. All like bosses, okay. like bossa novas. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you're fairly new still. It's exciting yeah. for you guys. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And now, you know, being young, it's you don't find really young jazz musicians, you know, every day. So why do you choose jazz music? What about it made you, you know, interested in that? I'll let you guys take this one first. Yeah, I love the uh, the honesty of it, the expression of it, the artistry of it, and just overall how how beautiful it is to me. Like the music, it it speaks to me on a level that no other sort of music does, because of the uh, the spirit and the emotion that the players, namely like the masters, put into it. Not to say that people don't do that now, because everybody everybody's great, but um. But yeah, the, the way the Masters played really just, just spoke to me and it just, just called me to it and I just wanted to express myself like that. Yeah. How about you? Well, I can't really say why. I mean, <laughs> I, I play it because I like it. I certainly enjoy it, playing it more than any other kind of music. But I wouldn't like kind of put it on a pedestal as an art form. It's just my preferred medium. Okay. Hmm. Um, I really like, as Judd said, like the expression of it, the artistry, and there's so much complexity happening constantly when you're playing this music. Uh, and on top of that, with traditional jazz music, there's a very strong language and tradition that is more passed down from older generations to younger generations, and that is something that's always like intrigued me. And once you start learning it, uh, uh, the way you can communicate musically just uh, skyrockets and possibilities. So, and when there's not, um, you know, lyrics with your music and it's solely instrumental, do you feel still feel like there, it tells a story? Absolutely. I think even sometimes more so, uh, at least for me. And I, you know, it's really important. I think all these guys kind of touched on it, but jazz is the uh, is the epitome for me of artistic communication because it. It involves a great deal of improvisation and spontaneity, and uh, and a great deal of trust. You know, I wouldn't, uh, I would trust any of these guys with my life in the room. And it's really important that you have that relationship on the bandstand because the jazz music can take any direction at any point in time. So you know, an improvisation sometimes people think about that as a as a really kind of elevated concept, but we improvise all the time. You know, we're improvising right now. We don't, we're not reading scripts. We have, we don't have a preconceived notion of what we're saying. Uh, we're just using our prior existing knowledge of, of language and rhetoric to create new spontaneous intent and new meaning that's going to only happen only happen in this moment right now. And that's what jazz music is about to me, is cultivation of the moment and celebration of the moment. So, I find often people ask me the question, like, does studying improvisation in music make you feel like more prepared to just improvise in everyday life? But I find it's very much the opposite, just, you know, living every day and everything you experience informs what you're playing in the music, not the other way. Okay, that's really interesting. Now what, you guys have an exciting time coming up because you're releasing a new album called Watercolors. Tell us a little bit about the album. The album initially was, uh, we, we thought about it back as a trio and we were, we were thinking about how can we, because, you know, Unfortunately, the jazz really never had a lot of um, kind of mainstream attention because it's it's not quite as accessible, you know, as, as some other music. In my opinion, uh, that's that's the reason. But um, but we wanted to 
you know, make a really accessible album that anybody could listen to, um, but, but not cultivate the artistic and creative integrity of what we're doing. So we initially were going to do a whole bunch of arrangements of really, you know, jazz standards or old American songbook standards and bossa nova standards. Uh, and then Judd joined the group and we're like, okay, well, let's take it a step further. So we, we have a lot of music uh, on the record, a lot, a lot of arrangements of standards that we talked about. We also, I wrote uh, string arrangements, so on four of the tracks, I think it is, we have uh, string players as well. So the aim of the album is to be as accessible as possible to the general public uh, while still maintaining our artistic spirit and vision. Now for you guys, what's your future hold for this band? What are you thinking? Carnegie, uh, world tour. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it seems like we're just kind of taking steps, I feel like. And uh, whatever opportunities were presented, we just run with it. Where do you perform now? We perform each week at, uh, at the Avenue Cafe, uh, which is on Michigan Avenue. Um, downtown Lansing. Downtown Lansing, or close to downtown Lansing on the way. It's more on the east side of Lansing. And it's, uh, we play from from 9 o'clock to 11 every Thursday, followed by an open jam session. And we would uh, love to share that with anybody that would like to come out. Now, where do you guys find your inspiration for your music? Everywhere. Yeah. Everywhere. Everywhere. All sorts of music. Right now, everything. You know, you can only really, you can only write or perform or play from your own experience. You know, anything else is going to be a, uh, kind of superficial. So every moment, you know, that you're living, that sounds so cliche, but seriously, every moment that you're living is a, uh, is a medium of inspiration for, for me. Every opportunity sure. you have, sure. every mistake you make, every, every success, everything. I find um, kind of more directly it comes from other people's music. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. We all listen to a lot of different styles, I mean, jazz particularly, but a lot of other things, and so we're always drawing on, uh, you know, the, we're kind of standing on the shoulders of giants, as it were, and we're drawing from all the records that have come before us. Well, thank you guys very much for coming. This is the Peter Nelson Quartet. Thanks for having us. The Peter Nelson Quartet will close the show tonight. Special thanks to our producer, Gabby Saldivia. Our station manager is Aaron Young, and our general manager is Ed Glazer. Keeping you informed and bidding you farewell until next week. This is Abby Newton for Impact Exposure, 89FM. This is the Peter Nelson Quartet performing Dawn in Winter.
You're listening to Impact Exposure. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Monday nights from 8 till 10, the Asian Invasion brings you the music from the rising sun. We'll bring you the latest pop, indie, rock, and electro from Korea, Japan, and China. Only on Impact 89 FM. An ordinary day, an ordinary family's living room filled with an ordinary bunch of kids. And they were doing nothing. When suddenly... That's a personal foul. Inactive activity on a sunny day. Coming to the rescue was NFL running back Reggie Bush. Let's play. And play they did. There was running and jumping and laziness was crushed. Hey kids, don't get a lazy penalty. Go online to smallstep.gov for fun playtime ideas. So you can be a player too. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Attention shoppers, if anyone is missing a rather plump set of love handles, please come to the customer service counter and claim them. The ample love handles were lost in the produce department where their former owner had purchased fruits and veggies to munch on during the big game. Thank you and have a good day. Small step number 81, snack on fruits and veggies. It's just one of the many small steps you can take to get healthy. Learn more at www.smallstep.gov. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. This is Gabriela Saldivia, and you are listening to Exposure on Impact 89FM. Earlier this year, we explored a range of topics surrounding gender on the show. When controversy about Beyonce's new album and her idea of feminism came to head, reporter Mega Bubba wanted to examine the relationship between feminism and race. Here's the story. When Beyonce's surprise album dropped, everyone was confused. Fans were frantic, critics raved, but there was one question that loomed on everybody's mind. Is Beyonce a feminist or not? 
In her album, she outright challenges stigmas on female sexuality, empowers women and girls through aggressive lyrics, and even samples a TED Talk by revered feminist Chimamanda Adichie. But for some reason, her motives are still called into question. White women come to earn the title feminist much easier than women of color in today's media. As a black woman, Beyonce has been criticized much more than her white counterparts. This is not a new thing. Starting with Sojourner Truth's Ain't I a Woman speech in 1851, women of color have been fighting for a space of recognition within the mainstream feminist movement. Tara Warren, a discussion leader from the MSU Women's Council, says she certainly sees an issue when it comes to intersections. And to be both a black woman, you're, you're either black and you side with the black community and you work on black issues and you advance your race, or you're a woman who advances your gender and you work on that issue. But like, society sometimes just refuses to see the intersection that you are both of those things together. The Women's Council creates an area where people can discuss various forms of discrimination and other difficult topics. All types of students from all walks of life can share their experiences and most importantly, find a place for support. MSU Women's Council has been um, inclusive as possible and tried to come up with issues that are relevant for women. That was J.B. Wilson. She is also a discussion leader for the Women's Council. She says that although the council strives to incorporate all people, they sometimes still face challenges. I think the problem comes when people start claiming any kind of separation or criticism is disunity and thus playing in the hands instead of listening to what the criticism is. In addition to fighting for a space, women of color have also worked to separate themselves from the more referenced and popular white feminism. Movements such as black feminism or womanism and sex positive feminism all exist as a way to address issues that are often forgotten. It has also bred thousands of authors, artists, and other creators that work to call out this hypocrisy. Mia McKenzie, curator and contributor to the famous blog Black Girl Dangerous, uses this medium to give a voice to those who may otherwise feel ignored. Black Girl Dangerous is a, I call it a multifaceted forum for the literary and artistic expression of queer and trans people of color. The blog is full of sensitive material and may offend some. It's full of explicit, unstructured rants from various pissed off people. Things happen and they happen again and again and again and you think at some point you're going to get this right, but they don't get it. Um, no, mainstream white feminism is notoriously bad at getting it. I'm notoriously bad at considering the experiences of people of color. This, the idea that feminism only serves one group of people, is a problem. Instead of ignoring it, Women's Council eBoard member Sarah Fenton suggests that we face it head on. I would say it is really on a day, like on the ground in your day-to-day -day life, feel uncomfortable at least a couple times a day. You know, put yourself in a position where you normally wouldn't want to be, and and feel that, and really feel it. You know, lean into it and experience what that's like, because every time you do that, it will get a little bit less uncomfortable. For Impact News, I'm Mega Bubba.
woke up, felt like it was gonna be a good one, and I was right, I was right. Saw you next to me, and I felt so lucky to be alive, be alive. Cause the moment's gone soon as it exists, try my best to capture this, save it in a mason jar, for when I got an aching heart. So let's roll out of bed, go for a drive down the coast, got worries, not a bit, let the waves creep along my toes, right here's where I'm supposed to be. You are tuned in to Exposure on WDBM Impact 89 FM. I am Gabriela Saldivia filling in tonight for Stephen Rich. Last November, past host Abby Newton and reporter Carmen Scruggs grappled, kicked, and punched their way through the martial art known as Krav Maga. Tonight, we once again bring you their story. Now, Krav Maga is a self-defense system developed in Israel and Hungary. It takes different moves and skills from boxing, wing chun, judo, and wrestling to create realistic fight training. Now, in addition, Krav Maga incorporates a philosophy emphasizing threat neutralization and aggression. There's actually a Krav Maga training center here at Michigan State. The slogan is, he who desires peace prepares for war. In this preparation, I spoke with two Krav Maga instructors and one of their students about the practice. We welcome instructors Cedric Ford and Justin Moore and our very own Carmen Scruggs to the studio. How would you two, as instructors of the technique and the dynamic fighting, would describe it? Um, well, I would say that uh, you are correct in saying that we do do, we, well, we do, do a lot of uh, counter moves mm-hmm. with our attacks. Um, with, with blocking, we do striking with blocking and things like that. So it is very, uh, can be aggressive. It may look aggressive, but the bottom line is at the, at the end of the day, we want you to go home safe. Mm-hmm. Anything to add? It's, it's really a, a unique system in the fact that it's based on natural instincts and anybody can do it. Uh, in Israel, everyone serves in the military, uh, male or female, um, at the age of 18 if you're a citizen. Uh, they, uh, you go into the military and you serve your mandatory time. Um, so they had to make a system that was efficient for people to do uh, in a very short amount of time. So they based a lot of the techniques and movements off of natural instincts um, and then built on those and it had to be learned in a short amount of time and retained uh, quickly. So um, very natural movements, very quick um, and very easy for everybody to be able to do. Um, it couldn't just be for the biggest guys out there or uh, those people that had uh, very good coordination. It had to be able to be done by everybody. And how did it make its way to Michigan State University? Um, well, initially, uh, we started doing this uh, in smaller groups, mm-hmm. and um, we started offering it to the public, and it's just grown over time in the area. 
And again, how long have you been doing this and operating it? Um, I've been involved in martial arts for years mm -hmm. um, since I was a kid. Uh, I started researching and I found Krav Maga about uh, 10 years ago and um, started uh, reading books and, and watching it and studying it and then I started training in it in a local school um, and then grew upon that and I, I advanced through it and went through instructor program from there. And I'm kind of along the same line. I've been doing uh, martial arts and wrestling ever since I was young and then about six years ago um, I, Justin kind of wrote me into it, <laughs> and uh, ever since then I've been hooked, and it, it, it's great. It's something that I truly love, I have a passion for. And why did you get involved with it? For you, it said it started at a young age, but what kind of sparked that interest to begin the study and the understanding of martial arts and then Krav Maga? Um, this is the whole martial arts thing, knowing how to uh, defend yourself and knowing how to uh, carry yourself is important, I think, in confidence in, in anybody. Um, and so that kind of draws you to that as a kid. Um, and then the, the Krav Maga aspect was, is, is through my studies through martial arts, I found that um, it takes years and years and years to master that. And in this current day and age of, you know, we've, we don't have as much time available to us because we're always busy and um, the technology and thing. We want things that happen quicker. So uh, Krav Maga had that appeal to it. I started researching it, you know, that you can learn this quick, it's effective, and you can walk away with techniques. Like in an hour class, you'll walk away with, uh, you know, a half dozen things and skills that you can walk out with, whereas in traditional martial arts, you may only walk away with one thing, mm -hmm. you know, in an hour class. Wow. And for you? Uh, just to go along with the whole confidence thing, um, we teach more than just self-defense. We teach, mm -hmm. you know, self-awareness, being being uh, aware of your surroundings. You know, if people are more aware of their surroundings, you know, when you're walking through a dark parking lot late at night by yourself and you scan the parking lot before you, you know, exit the building and before you get to your car or you look in your backseat of your car before you get in because you never know what could happen. You mm -hmm. never know who could be out there. And like Justin said, in this day and age, it, it's hard. It's hard to, uh, you know, be on your toes 24-7. But, you know, what we offer is we offer that, that mental awareness mm -hmm. just having that ability to, to be... Uh, to be able to recognize what's going on around you. And in the studio, we also have Carmen Scruggs, our very own impactor, and she took a class and has been exposed to Krav Maga. So to you, what was your experience like and your perspective of the martial art? Well, I took it back in Memphis, mm -hmm. Krav Maga. That's where I first got interested for about six weeks. And I know you need to take it for, what, six months to really get a basic level approach? Yeah, give or take. A lot of it depends on, on the student, but yeah, about six months is usually normal right and but for the six weeks that I could do it uh, it's just really great it's like they said it really helps with your confidence mm -hmm. like you're gonna be able to know what you do if you get in a situation and um, that's very comforting to mm -hmm. know and then also just for like a great workout Not really it's relieves a lot of stress you know I really like kickboxing but what's really cool about Krav Maga is it incorporates a lot more self-defense so it's like you're learning these real-life moves that you can use, and you're also getting really good workout. Hmm. So for the first class, if I was a new student, what would you introduce me to, or I guess what would I experience during that first lesson of that one hour? Um, for the first lesson, we would teach you everything from um, a proper fighting stance, mm -hmm. a proper way to punch without hurting yourself, and to be more effective in, in your fighting. Um, a lot of combatives, punching, strikes, elbows, kicks, um, the, the lower levels, like in level one, you're going to learn a lot of combatives and mm -hmm. you're going to learn how to apply them properly without hurting yourself. And to get a little taste, how, what is a proper punch? How would I do that? Um, 
rolling your fingers up, mm -hmm. um, proper placement of the thumb, uh, and then proper striking with the knuckles. Um, just your typical straight plunge, keeping the hand straight up and down, um, and good body rotation. You know, okay. you got to have that good foundation of your stance of your feet, um, and striking straight out and everything in the bone structure in good alignment to have a good strong plunge. And with your experience, do you feel that more women are drawn to Krav Maga or men, or a little bit of both? Well, we're hoping to get to get uh, a little bit of both. Right now, our classes are, are a little bit um, one-sided towards the male half, but we are getting mm. a lot more females in there, um, which is which is great because we do offer uh, rape aggression programs mm. for women. So if you know any women want to have their friends come in, or we can even do private seminars for them um, for um, any type of women organizations or anything like that, we do offer that as well. So if, if you are a female and you are kind of leery about coming in and being around a, a lot of guys, it's okay, you can come in, we'll take care of you. But if you still have that fear, you can uh, you know, contact us and we can set up a seminar, a private seminar, private classes, anything to help you out. So you don't usually partner the tallest guy with the smallest girl in... <laughs> well, it's, it's important to train with different, with different that's, body that's structures and body types. It's, you know, because, you know, I'm... I'm 6'2", 240 pounds, my, the person I'm fighting could be 5'8", could be 6'8". It mm -hmm. doesn't, you know, you never know. Mm -hmm. So you just have to get used to fighting and being around different body types. Sure. I think females are, are quite often intimidated to come mm -hmm. into something that's such a, an aggressive um, sport or training atmosphere like that. Um, but the thing about it is once they come in, they like it and enjoy it. They realize it's not... Uh, that type of atmosphere. That's not what we try to, to promote. I mean, it is an aggressive thing, but uh, we make it comfortable for the females that come in and train. Um, so walking in, you can kind of see the look on their face. By the time they leave, they're smiling and excited. You know, they had a good workout and a good training session and learned a lot of valuable information. Um, so I think a one-hour session totally makes them comfortable in, in the fact of this isn't what I thought it was when I just came into it. So. And Carmen, can you attest to that? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean... I've been to classes where I've had to be paired with men or women and, you know, it is it is good getting used to the body type because a woman might attack me. Mm -hmm. I don't know, but if she does, I'm going to know what to expect and how to handle it. Right. Wow. Well, again, just one last thing. Um, can you just stress the importance that you feel that people, especially on college campus, are exposed to different teachings and learnings like that you offer? Um, yeah, we... We offer a lot in the, the aspect of the safety. So mm -hmm. you're walking along, your awareness, avoidance. So we'll try to avoid those situations as much as possible that mm -hmm. might be dangerous. Um, we see a lot of distractions, especially with the technology age. People are, you know, have headsets in or on their iPod or on their phone or texting or tablets or whatever it may be or uh, reading books because they're studying. And they're not aware of all their surroundings. So we try to avoid that because you win 100% of those confrontations that you're not in. If you can avoid it altogether, you've won that situation. Hmm. And, and that's what we really try to promote. But there are comes those times where, uh, you know, someone may engage you. Um, there's a, there's a huge... Uh, thing going around right now called knock them out and people come up and approach and, and punch somebody and try to knock them out and then they run off and it's a game that they're playing. Um, so that may come a situation where that happens where you may be robbed, you know, and we always advocate obviously giving up property if somebody wants that. We don't we don't want you to, to fight back to that person. But at some point in time you have to make the distinguishing uh, fact of whether the person wants property or they want you. Mm -hmm. And if they want you then we don't want you to just give in. We want you to fight back and to, to save yourself and, and not be taken to a secondary location and something bad happened to you there. So we give you those skills to safely do that, hopefully. 
And anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, we uh, just to piggyback off what Justin said, we do um, a lot of the training with weapons, whether it be a blunt object, cutting instrument, knives, uh, guns. We do we train for multiple attackers, how to survive multiple multiple attackers. Uh, in, in those kind of situations and scenarios. And again, you're going to have to, you know, work your way up through the, the, uh, mm-hmm. the levels. We don't have a belt system. Um, we'd have five levels, and every level you're going to learn something different. We're going to add new things. We're going to add weapons. We're going to add multiple attackers. We're going to, you know, uh, take you outside of the studio because not everything's done in the studio. In a real-life fight, you're not going to be in the studio or in the dojo, you know, practicing techniques with a partner. You're going to be fighting someone that really wants to hurt you you know, deprive you of property mm-hmm. or, like Justice said, kidnap you, do whatever. So we do we do um, some training outside in the parking lot because that's where you could be. You could be next to a car. You could be, you know, trip over a curb or whatever. Um, so those are some of the things that we try to incorporate into our program to make it as realistic as possible for our students. Okay. Well, great. Well, thank you very much. This is Spartan Krav Maga. We really appreciate your time, and we look forward to watching this progress and the popularity increase, I think. like a normal day at the Spartan Bookstore at Michigan State University. But upon further investigation, I realized we had a superhero among us. Batman. Yes, Alfred? It's the bat form, sir. Commissioner? You'll never guess who's on the loose. Your old arch enemy, the Riddler. Good heavens. Him again. Can you come to headquarters right away? It'll be a pleasure, Commissioner Gordon. But this Batman left his cape at home. It was actually Adam West, the actor who played the 1966 Batman. He visited Michigan State's campus to share his knowledge, sign autographs, and protect us from the Joker. 
we sat down with a superhero who actually grew up on a wheat farm in Washington. Look at these hands. Aren't these the hands of a farmer? <laughs> Absolutely. Then I went to Stanford, did some postgraduate work, became the radio station manager at Stanford. Then I won an audition. I went to NBC. In uh, one year, I was fired. Yes, I was drafted. And a whole bunch of stuff happened that day. Yeah, <laughs> but I decided to go into the Army and uh, went to basic training in California. One thing led to another, and I was made, uh, well, they asked me if I'd start the Army's first TV stations. Closed circuit in California, I did with some success, and then they sent me to New York and New Jersey to do the same. And from there, I got a job in Honolulu, and then I was doing a play. I was discovered by a couple of guys from Hollywood. And one of them, an agent named Lou, said, Kid, we can sell you in Hollywood. Send me a picture, will you, <laughs> on a horse. And I did, and, and six weeks later, I was signed by Warner Brothers. In the signature role, of course. As a young kid, West loved reading the Batman comic books and mimicking Batman and Robin's adventures. Um, you know, it was amazing having um, enjoyed those comic books, Batman mm -hmm. especially, when I was a kid on the ranch, uh, to suddenly years later wind up being or playing Batman. I mean, that kind of psyched me out a little. But, you know, when you pull on that cowl, it's so simple because as an actor, you just kind of sense memory and go back. Your question, you see, how was it when I was playing Batman as a kid? Hey, with my brother, hey, you be Robin, I'll be Batman. Come on, let's go out and play. Let's go play Batman. It's the same thing when you walk out of your dressing room. You pull on the cowl, you got the cape and all that stuff, and you think to yourself, wow, we're gonna go play Batman now. <laughs> Was it difficult to it ever works. take the cape off? Uh, to take it off? Yeah, I mean, you know, to turn back into Adam West and not Batman. Oh, I see. Um, you know, it's always somewhat difficult to leave a role that you've invested uh, a lot of stuff in, mm -hmm. into. However, it was such a relief to pull off that hot cowl, <laughs> get out of those itchy tights. No, it was no trouble, <laughs> believe me. Oh, I couldn't even go to the bathroom for, for days. I'm so sorry. Yes, I couldn't find the zipper. No, I'm teasing. Go on. Now, once people in the East Lansing and Lansing area heard that the Caped Crusader was coming to campus, they flocked to the Spartan bookstore. Teresa Dunn of DeWitt was an excited fan waiting you know, in line. You know, I'm a really big comic fan. I like all that sort of stuff with the campy, you know, bang kapow, you know, exploding sharks. It's all up my alley, so the chance to actually meet Adam West, because he's never in this area, ever, so it's a great opportunity, really. What are you going to say to him when you go up there? I have no idea. I'm hoping I just don't, like, completely choke up. I might ask him if he'd ever consider being Alfred in a movie. So, for you, does Batman represent something more important, you know, the superhero aspect? What does it mean to you? Truth, justice, and the American way. <laughs> With Teresa's enthusiasm for Adam West, came the impersonation. I'm Batman. <laughs> it's terrible, I know. <laughs>
Michigan State University sophomore Stuart Tarp also waited in line to meet his childhood idol. I'm here to meet Adam West, and he's hopefully going to sign my Batman number one limited edition poster. Adam West was sort of like a childhood idol to me. I really looked up to him, and I watched his movie probably like a thousand times, so I'm just really excited to meet him and actually get his signature here. But to Stuart, his love and respect for the Batman went beyond the stealth of a Batmobile in a black cape. To me, it represents that you should never compromise in the face of justice. You always got to look forward and remember, Batman is the symbol that we should never compromise. Go for your dreams. Besides playing the Dark Knight, West has appeared in many other films and has done much voiceover work. His current project... Mayor West, what are you doing here? I'm being a rascal and ringing people's doorbells and running away. Then what are you still doing here? It's my first house. I'm not very good at this. Mayor Adam West from the popular television show Family Guy. I think the toughest thing is to play yourself. For example, to play Mayor Wee, Mayor West, in Family Guy. That's really tough because you're not behind... Uh, what they used to call, I think in England, the green umbrella of a role. You're not hiding in a role. You've got to be yourself. But with Family Guy, it's necessary to do a crazy, quirky, um, strange variation. But you better walk that tight wire, otherwise you're too goofy. You know what I mean? There's a certain dignity uh, that can be preserved in just about all kinds of comedy, even physical comedy. Mm -hmm. Look at Cary Grant, for example. <laughs> However, Wes says his favorite role is always his current role. You embrace it, and you think, I'm going to make that my favorite, and I'm going to bring it something fresh. Look out. The last thing I wanted to know from West was what was on his bucket list. Uh, I think maybe to go home and, and, and uh, play with the dogs. That's good. <laughs> Uh, th there are a lot of things I want to do. My God, I want to go to the Caribbean and go diving. And uh, I want to go back to Yellowstone soon and hope it's still there. Um, I think I want to travel and I want to read some more good scripts. And with that, we let Adam West retire to his bad cave as we retired back to our studios. For Impact News, just outside of Gotham City, I'm Abby Newton. Yesterday in the ambition goes down my back.
want to thank you again tonight for joining us on the show. Special thanks to General Manager Ed Glazer and all of our staff here at Impact 89FM. Tonight's show and all other exposure shows can be found on the website at www.impact89fm.org. Keeping you informed and bidding you farewell, until next time, I am Gabriella Saldivia, and you have been listening to Impact Exposure 89FM. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. 89